You are listening to the message by Antioch Center for the Nations. For more information, please visit www.antiochcenterforthenations.org. Thank you. Uh, while I was there, each time I preached, the Lord kept speaking the same issue about, and I'll put the title of our message up, our responsibility of faith. Responsibility of faith. And this message kept emerging in each occasion when I shared and um, different messages I was preaching, but I would, I would speak this message in, embedded in those messages. So as it was evolving, I knew, wow, this is going to be the message when I go back home. It'll be the Sunday night message. So I'm excited to be able to share it with you. And we're going to get that in a moment, but I, I want to pray first for our offering in case you want to give tonight. Um, also, those online, if you want to give, you can go to our website at Antioch Center for the Nations, and there's opportunity there. You can give by credit card, and we welcome any funding at all to cover the expenses of the work. But Father, we pray that you would bless everyone that gives, bless this offering, in Jesus' name, amen. So responsibility of faith. I'm going to begin by reading Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 15. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So God has a purpose for us. I think we can all agree that to that. And he is more than willing to transform our existence into an instrument of glory. He wants to make you an instrument of glory. He wants to make you an instrument of peace. He wants to make you a tool in his hand to do many things. You are an extension of Christ. Christ walked on the earth, Jesus was here, but now we are here. He said, greater works than these will you do, meaning that we would be his hands and his feet in the body of Christ doing wonderful things, and it's all for his glory, the glory of his name. However, we need to understand some important things about our responsibility to work out our salvation. Paul, while he was there, was constantly encouraging the people in, in um, the Philippians in this church in Philippi. But in his absence, he knew that maybe while the cat's away, the mice may play. And there are many parables that talk about the fact that when a spiritual leader is not present uh, or that the master is not there, the servants may start to think he's long in coming. And I read it this morning in the Chinese church where we were looking at that passage about how they begin to beat the other men servants and then the master comes. If the master comes and finds us faithful, fulfilling our obligations, in other words, our responsibilities, then he will be pleased with us. And he will reward us. In fact, the, Jesus said that not only will he be pleased, he'll make us sit down and he'll serve us a meal. And that really is a reference to the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's a time coming if we find ourselves in a place of working out our salvation and living our responsibilities. And I'm going to uh, get more into this so that you understand. Because there's a lot of people who I believe in the body of Christ stagnate and sit by waiting for something to happen in their life, 
in their life of faith. Uh, they believe that God is a sovereign God, which he is, and will do his will in their life no matter what happens. They believe that God is sovereign and that it, according to a form of predestination, God is God and he will do what he's going to do. And so it can, if we have this out of balance, we can get to a place of inactivity, simply waiting for God waiting around for the Lord to do something, but this mentality can render a believer inactive or incapable of fulfilling the purposes of God. And that's what this is about. I think of James chapter 2, verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe there is one God? Well, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. I like this because James addresses this issue with this passage, stating that faith is something that must be accompanied by a measure of action or work. And that faith standing alone is virtually worthless. Faith by itself is not really functional because there must be a function of faith. There has to be an action of faith for it to produce fruit. The two things work together. Our works and our faith. And we see that. We know that the Lord worked with them with signs and wonders confirming. That means that they went out and did things. They rose to their responsibilities and God met them where they were to fulfill that. And this is an important issue. Even James here mocks the idea that believing, that is faith, in itself is enough by stating that even demons believe. So if there was something just by having faith without actions, then he said, well, you might as well just be a demon. Because there has to be actions. There has to be something we do as we take responsibility and we're required to do physical things to substantiate our claims of faith. This is where I am not always a fan of people who spend a lot of time in prayer meetings, praying and praying. A lot of people claim the ministry of intercession and they spend all their time interceding, but they're not always doing something practical on the outside. Even sometimes people will spend a lot of time prayer walking. I think in itself that's good, provided that it is followed by actions. But if you're only prayer walking, if you're only flying in airplanes over nations, binding and loosing demons and doing that, and that's all you do is have fun with your friends, praying, I find that to be a bit simple. And it is not a fulfillment of the Great Commission. Go into all the world, preach the gospel. That's actually speaking. So there's more work involved there. Abraham here in this passage with James, his, his example of relationship with God through faith is given to prove the concept that Abraham was saved as we are saved today. You know that we're saved by faith, by grace, through faith, we believe. Not by works, but we're saved by that. But it requires that also action take place. And the example given here by James is that he offered his own son Isaac. Boy, what an action to sacrifice his very own child. 
the image of God the Father sacrificing the Son, Jesus Christ. So Abraham's example of relationship with God through faith is given to prove that concept. And Abraham learned that faith works together with works, thereby forging the very concept of God's acceptance of us by grace through faith. Whereas there is an imbalance when we think, well, grace is more than enough and I never have to do anything. No, the scriptures are plain. Look what it's saying. So I'm, I'm attacking this, this error, let's say, with some areas that we're going to cover in a moment. But honestly, we are obligated to act. There are areas of our spiritual yet earthly lives that have often been neglected by our misunderstanding of this concept. And the Lord has been speaking this issue to me throughout um, these last few weeks. And so I bring this message to you tonight. How many of you are interested in this? You feel like hearing this? Well, after careful consideration and thought on this topic, I've put together five areas of our obligation of faith. And, and honestly, I'm going to share with this, these concepts because perhaps these things can free you from certain inactivity and make you able to be more or do more for Christ. And that's my prayer over you and this message. Lord, bless the reading and the hearing of your word. Uh, let my tongue be as the pen of the ready writer, just jotting down the dictates of the master, not speaking of my own, but speaking the things that your spirit has given me. And I pray that it would fall in this room upon spirit ears and that everyone would receive it because I know the people in this room receive me as a messenger from you. And so with that formula, two or more gathered in your name, whatever we agree upon will be done. We come into agreement that this is your word and that we are open to it. Lord, let it have transformative power in us tonight. In Jesus' name, if you agree, say amen. Amen. Okay, five areas of our obligation of faith. Number one, salvation and healing. Romans 10, 13 says, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. First of all, we see here that it requires that we call. That's the first action. We call out. We're not just standing there and God sneaks up on us and saves us without us knowing it's going to happen. We have to take the steps. How then can they or shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So here we see salvation. It all starts with our confession of faith. In actuality, it is 100% dependent upon the choice that we make to believe and then speak. So this first action, calling upon the Lord. Romans 10, 9 and 10, believe in your heart, confess with your mouth. Because it is what enacts or the catalyst of salvation is the very declaration. We have to say it. So our continual confession also is important. Like it says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. 
It was interesting as we were traveling through those areas and we were stopped by different people, uh, these, you know, people connected to the cartel, corrupt people there with, you know, masks and machine guns. People are questioning you with a machine gun, it, you tend to want to answer. And it was beautiful to see that Pedro, who was driving at the moment, he, every one of them, he declared the Lord Jesus Christ to them. Every one of them, he told them, and he preached and shared, we're pastors, we're preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We come through this area. In fact, we do baptisms. He named the water place that they go to, and they remembered to say, oh, yeah, yeah, we know, and they let us through. But there was no hiding of the gospel to these people. The gospel is declared, no matter who it is, where it is. And so we see that that's an action we have to take. And really, all five of these things we're going to see tonight are built upon our faith and not God's sovereignty. Now, God does not sovereignly save us. It is up to us. We need to take the choice to go that route and receive it. It's by your faith that you are saved and set free. And this is also true of healing, by the way. So that's why I put it with healing, because the Greek does not separate salvation and healing. There's a word in the Greek, sozo, which means as much healing as salvation, because salvation is from all of the byproducts of sin, which is also sickness and disease. And so the word sozo, heal, deliver, protect, a therapeutic meaning, a, a therapy that relieves pain, uh, it's tending to cure or restore to health. Isaiah 53.3 says, He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. So we grieve sorrows. And we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. Look at all the things he's paying for here. I mean, the work of salvation is broad. We're talking about um, psychological issues, mental, emotional issues. Now we're talking about transgressions, the actual sins themselves. Sin is just one of the many things in this verse. He was bruised for our iniquities. That's the byproduct of our transgressions. And the chastisement for our peace was upon him. And then it says, like the cherry on top of the Sunday, and by his stripes we are healed. So salvation encompasses all of these areas. But salvation is not something that just automatically is given to you. It is your responsibility to seek it out. How many times did you hear Jesus say, it was your faith that healed you, he says in the scriptures. Your faith has made you whole, or be it according to your faith. He was depending not upon his sovereignty. How many of you agree that Jesus could and had the ability to heal anybody? He often proved that. Some of the places he went, it says, and everyone was healed of every disease. But then when he went to his own hometown where there was a certain stigma or disbelief, it says they were not healed, and he could not do mighty works because of their doubt and unbelief. That means that it was incumbent upon them to take the action that would cause healing, that would cause salvation. And he's not willing that any should perish. It says in 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you. How many of you are glad he's patient with us? Not wanting anyone to perish but everyone that come to repentance. This means that Jesus, 
The Lord God, our Father in heaven, has a plan for every single human being to be saved. He's already did his part. 2,000 years ago, it is finished, Jesus said. The work was complete. So now whose responsibility is it to, to accept salvation? It's our responsibility. And when we're preaching to the masses, when we're preaching to the world, it's important that we tell them that. No matter what is made available to you, it is your responsibility. So I just got finished explaining this to my own daughter as I'm teaching her journey with Jesus and I was explaining concepts about Christ. I had a very tearful moment where, with her where I started crying and I had to tell her, Daddy can't save you. Daddy, can't, Daddy cannot take you to heaven. It is 100% your responsibility, honey. You have to make the choice to believe. And now that you're coming to the age of reason, this is important. The most important information you will ever hear. And she opened it. Uh, she opened her heart to me and listened. And it was a really good moment as I'm teaching her. But it is her responsibility. Each person work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. So that's the first category. Also healing. You know how many people were healed because they reached out and they demanded. The woman with the issue of blood is a prime example. Even without the plan of Jesus, he did not have the plan or strategy from the Father to heal that woman, but she stole the healing that was meant for Jairus' daughter and took it out of the body of Jesus because it was her responsibility to seek out her healing. She did it and she received it. It's the same with us. Don't, if you have sickness or disease in your body, don't wait around for some anointed man of God to come or for some preacher or for some sovereign move of God. You need to go after it. You need to seek it. You need to place a demand on the healing power of Jesus. You need to speak to yourself. I have spoken to myself in mirrors in the bathroom so many times, pointing at myself as you will be healed in the name of Jesus. I had tumors in my entire nasal passage at one time. I stuck my finger in my nose and pointed at them and I said, I curse you like Jesus cursed the fig tree. You're going to dry up and die in Jesus' name. Not long after that, I had a dream that I was sneezing and things came out of my nose. The dream became a reality and it happened and all of them came out. Now, Jesus did not come down and say, Stephen, you poor thing, let me heal that for you. I demanded it. I went after it. It's like that for many, every, every healing I've ever had in my body, it's my choice. It's really a degree of discipline. It's like anything in life. Discipline is required for you. You have to take responsibility over your own life. And it's funny because salvation is often categorized as something that God entirely takes care of. It is, but his duty or his responsibility has already been met 2,000 years ago. He lays it out. It's like that tray over there of Jesus' meats and such. He's laid out the buffet. We have to go and take it in just a moment because it's a self-service world now in Christ. In just a moment, when we're finished with this, we're going to pray and bless the food, this little plate, so you're going to have to go get it. Nobody's going to serve you. Think of that as a really good analogy of healing. That's where healing is. Healing is kept in the Epiraneus. Remember, we were talked about the, the holy place. All, every good gift, every perfect gift comes down from above. And we need to take hold of it. We need to demand it. It's our choice to believe God is not willing that any of us should perish, and that it includes healing. So that's the first category. Second category, number two, is baptism and testimony. Now this is interesting because water baptism, we know, is the outward sign or expression of an inner happening. 
We get saved, but after that, the next step is our water baptism. We get baptized to declare to the people around us what we have believed. But if it were a sovereign work, God would just suddenly, as you're walking down the streets somewhere in Bishan or in Yishun, a big, big column of water would fall out of the sky, a deluge on you, and you are baptized. <laughs> ah, and you're like, under the water, oh, he sovereignly did. No, you have to take the steps to be water baptized. Recently, um, you know, it was interesting. I was uh, meeting with uh, the Dishapolas at their house. This is some time back. And, and Andrea asked, why am I not water baptized? Like, she got this revelation. What's up with this? You know, why am I? I said, well, why? I don't know. That's a good question. It's your responsibility to claim it. And she did. She said, well, let's do it tomorrow. I said, let's do it tomorrow. Sure thing, the next day we did it. And she was baptized in water. And what was interesting is it started a chain reaction in her life like a domino effect. Why? Because when we do that, when we take responsibility to be water baptized, it gets God's attention. He says, okay, if they're responsible with this, they meet me this far, I'm going to meet them. Actually, right now it's cool in America, there's a, a water baptism revival going on. This one particular preacher, I don't know his name, I'll, I'll look up later. He heard the Lord speak to him and said, I'm going to meet them in the water. And he started doing water baptism, and he's done, they've done tens of thousands of these. And people come, and they're touched and renewed and strengthened. In fact, while I was at Praise Church, this young girl got up and testified about her experience when she went. Radically saved, set free. One of the most beautiful testimonies I've heard in a long time. That was done through water baptism. She took the responsibility of making sure she went and was water baptized. And because water baptism is really a type of testimony, we know that that also is connected. Our testimony is our responsibility. God is not sovereignly going to testify through us. We have to open our mouths and speak it. I like this idea being clearly seen with Philip in the eunuch in Acts chapter 8, verse 30. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I understand unless someone guides me, he said. And so he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the chariot that was rolling along. So Philip ran up to the chariot and speaks to him. And the place in the scripture which he, um, which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shear is silent. So he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will decide uh, uh, declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth? So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of some other man? Of course, we know this was a divine setup. That God is doing his part by reaching out to man and causing these elements to come together supernaturally. Philip opened his mouth and began at the scripture the guy was reading. He preached Jesus to him. Because, of course, it was a messianic prophecy. Now, as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, now this is very important, does not say Philip said. Philip is the preacher. Philip is the one that would want to baptize people. But the eunuch is taking responsibility for the next step after believing in Jesus. He believes, but then he says here, look, you know, um, 
here is some water. What hinders me from being baptized? Why am I not water baptized? Let's do this right here. Then Philip said, well, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, well, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he had that in line, but the next responsibility was water baptism. And so he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. Now, when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. What a cool thing to see in your water baptism. You get water baptized, you come up, and your preacher vanishes. The pastor just, poof, disappears. What an amazing sign and wonder. How many of you believe that eunuch had great faith as a result of that? He knew that. He may have thought that Philip was an angel. I would have thought that. I, would, I wouldn't have even thought of Philip as a preacher or any. I thought that must be an angel because he vanished. And this is the, one of the only cases in the Bible where we see someone translated physically. Uh, we have often driven as missionaries across nations. We had a regular trip we would take that was uh, a 24-hour car drive just from southern Mexico, and I would always pray for translation. All the time. I'd pray, I swear, in the, in, right in the middle of the trip, 10 hours in or so, I'd say, God, it would be so easy for you, like Philip, to just suddenly make my car appear on the border after this long trip, and God never did it. I don't know. I think he should have. How many of you agree he's, that he should do that? I think it would be great. Now, especially now that the LTA has so graciously taken my e-scooter away from me, uh, now I have to walk all the way from my house. So translation, what if we could have like the gift of translation and just like transport from here to there? You know I would be eating baguette in Paris like every morning. So you know I would abuse it, no doubt. Maybe that's why God doesn't give it to us. Because believe me, I would be everywhere all the time. No limit. Anyway, I'm being silly. But thank God that someone like this did this. Water baptism carries a lot of weight. And it's a proof to God that you're serious about this. And a eunuch took the initiative and asked for the baptism. Nobody told me I had to be water baptized. I heard about it. And when I heard about it, I said, I want to do that. And our church had a baptismal in it. It had little steps going down into the pool, steps going out. And they did that baptism where they make you act like a dead person and they lower you backwards into the water, uh, which I don't do because that is so uncomfortable. It's the worst way to baptize someone because they're <coughs> almost all of them are drowning. So when I had my own ministry, I was like, I'm not doing that. The Bible does not teach that. That's tradition. I'm just going to have people squat in the water. And so squatting is better than being laid unnaturally backwards. How many of you take a bath like that and you just, I'm going to bathe now. No, you, you go into the water carefully. Gosh, that's how I was baptized. And it was not the power of God that hit me. It was about two liters of water running up my nose. Ah, and I'm jumping around, I'm slapping the elders, and they're like, calm down. They pick me up out of the water. Hallelujah, hallelujah, nothing, I'm drowning. It was very disturbing. It's a physical thing. And we can use wisdom to do it in a way that is not so uncomfortable. Number three, spirit baptism and the gifts of the Spirit are also our responsibility. Third area. 
And funny that all of these things are pretty much the foundation of our whole existence as believers. Salvation, water baptism, baptism in the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. Baptism in the Spirit is another area where we are the ones that take the action to, to accept what is available. The Holy Spirit came 2,000 years ago. Never where does it say he left. The Holy Spirit is ever present here on earth now. Jesus said, oh, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. He's not going anywhere. He's here. He's here. He's, I like what Smith Wigglesworth said. If the Spirit doesn't move, move the Spirit. That You see that responsibility rising on our part to take hold. The disciples were really eagerly waiting for the Spirit. They were told, go and wait. Don't leave. In other words, they were given a responsibility by Jesus to go and wait. And they waited for 10 days. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire and set upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Also, in like manner, Cornelius and the people in the house also went through this in Acts chapter 10, verse 30. Sir Cornelius said, Four days ago I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. So we see hungry people here taking steps to insist upon the coming of the Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Speaking in tongues is the evidence, but notice the passages say here that, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit did not speak in tongues. I tell people that all the time, the Holy Spirit does not speak in tongues. I'm sorry, he doesn't. You speak in tongues. And the number one reason why people do not speak in tongues is because they're not speaking. I pray for people and they do this. I'm like, what is that? I said, can you speak to me in English or whatever your language is without breath passing your larynx? So I tell him, speak, would you just? It's not the Holy Spirit taking control over me and making me speak whether I like it or not. I'm not a tongue slave and, uh, and tongues come flying out. I take the choice and the responsibility to use that beautiful gift given to me by the Lord and pray. And the more I pray in the Spirit, the more it grows and expands. And through the years, I've gotten diversity of tongues. I speak in many different languages in the Spirit. I sing in the Spirit. I even rap in the Spirit. I have rhyming tongues. All that is why? Because I sought it out. When I read in the scriptures that there was a gift called diversity of tongues, I was like, well, give me that. What is that? I didn't even know what it was. I looked in the Greek and it just says different kinds of tongues. I saw, I want different kinds of tongues. Sure enough, in a time of seeking and praying, just like these disciples, I had God come to me and give me the ability, and then I spoke out a new prayer language, and then another, and then another. First time it happened, I had two prayer languages, and I remember thinking, wow, I don't even know anyone that has two prayer languages. And so I would pray in 30 minutes in one and 30 minutes in the other. Please don't go do that. I'm not giving you a formula. I did that then. But then all of a sudden a third prayer language came. 
Uh-oh. So I started praying 20 minutes in each language. About a week after that, power God hit me, and a fourth prayer language came. So I was doing 15 minutes in each language. I stopped counting when I was only able to do five minutes per language. And it passed 20, 30 languages. And they just kept coming and coming. A lot of people, and I even talked to other pastors about the gift. And I told them I have diversity of tongues. Oh, yeah, brother, we got that too. I said, well, so you have all these, well, you know, when you're praying and changes. and you, No, no, I'm talking about very distinct, different languages that I have the control over. I can speak them when I Why? Because they're my languages. They're not the Holy Spirit speaking through me. It's me. And that's why I say this responsibility. Now, Tongues is just indicative of a much bigger concept. All of the gifts as listed in the 14th chapter of 1 Corinthians are like that. All of the gifts are specifically given by God for us. And it says in that passage in 1 Corinthians 12, 11, but one and the same Spirit works all, all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. So the Lord decides what to give you, but once it's given to you, it's your responsibility to use it. And this is in reference to all the spiritual gifts. The gift of the word of knowledge, gift of the word of wisdom, discerning of spirits, working of miracles, prophecy, tongues and interpretation. All of these things, faith, all these gifts are available to us, but it's our responsibility. And in verse 31, in that same passage, later on it says in the King James Version, but covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet show I unto you a more excellent way. And the NIV says, but earnestly desire. So I started thinking, covet, desire, translated differently. I looked it up. You know what word it is? It's celos, zeal, where we get the word jealous. Isn't it Interesting. That when you see someone that has something you do not have, what do you feel sometimes? Jealousy. And the Bible is saying you should feel jealous when somebody has a spiritual gift that you don't have. I do. That's why I got everything I have. It's because I heard other preachers talk about certain endowments and power and gifts, and I thought, God's no respecter of persons. And I took responsibility and I placed a demand on it. I'm going to receive that. And I did receive it little by little along this road that God has been leading me. And it's very interesting. We need to be jealous of people who have spiritual gifts and place a demand on it. Go after it. Became a missionary because I saw David Hogan preach in my church and I got jealous. I want to do that. And my life became that. I heard people pray in tongues. I want to do that. And my life became that. I, heard, I saw people anointed and moving in the power of the Spirit and the anointing coming to me. And I said, I want to do that. I got jealous of my pastor, jealous of my Bible school teacher, jealous of the evangelists that were coming. And for every one of them, I said, I want that. And that brings us to number four. Anointing in power. That's your responsibility. You are obligated to go after. Elisha is a really good example of this in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 9. When they had crossed the river Jordan, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me, what can I do for you before I am taken from you? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. You've asked a difficult thing, Elijah said. Yet if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise, it will not. Now here we see... Elisha 
taking the initiative or making a plan, and when the moment came, he was ready to demand a double portion. That was on him. That was his responsibility. Not just sitting around. Elisha didn't hang out in the field with his oxen plowing, waiting for the anointing to come. Yes, Elijah came, put the mantle on and took it, but he left him, and Elisha had the opportunity to pursue him. Everything comes that way. Nobody hands you the anointing. This is built upon intimacy with the Spirit, and just like in a relationship with the human that depends upon your choices and actions. If you want a relationship with me, if I want a relationship with you, I need to take action to spend time with you. It's my responsibility to develop that relationship. The anointing is a byproduct of a relationship with the Holy Spirit. If you want the anointing, you want the power of God flowing through you because you will receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you. But you're going to have to be the one to press in until it happens. And Elisha was a really good example of that. He understood the principle of mentorship, discipleship. And many do not receive the anointing because they're, not, they're waiting for God to find them. They believe in elitism. They believe in a very special group of people that are sectioned off and separated by God as the only ones worthy to receive these special endowments, but that is not even biblical. Every individual has access. In this realm that we live in now, absolutely, it's a different world. It, things changed back when John the Baptist was born. Jesus talks about it here in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has never risen one greater than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He's saying, figure this out spiritually. I'm going to put the puzzle in front of you, but it's your responsibility to get what I'm saying. And it was interesting because he's talking about this new error where it is our obligation, our responsibility, arise, kill, and eat, to go and take. One more we're going to cover, number five. Ministry function in kingdom. Isaiah 6.1, one, one of my favorite passages. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, 
Here am I. Send me. I love this because Isaiah took the initiative here. God did not say to Isaiah, I have called you to do this. This is what you will do. He exposed him to a glorious environment, the presence of God, just like he does to many of us in church services or during worship. We become aware of another realm. We feel the glory of God. He exposes it to us. And then needs are spoken. Who can do this job? I wonder, who would be able to go and bring this message? He didn't say, Isaiah, you will go. Isaiah said, I will go. Hey, what about me? Let's paraphrase it. Who could go for us? Hmm, it's interesting. They had put Isaiah in the heaven there. He's there in the heavenly realm listening to this. And, and God says amongst the Trinity, I imagine, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, hey, guys, who, who do you think we could get to go for us to do this job? And Isaiah's like, well, what about me? I'll do it. Okay. And then he sends him. And this is exactly how I've received everything in ministry. I said earlier, David Hogan came and preached. I heard it, and I said, I want that. And I went and took it. And yet, it's interesting, a lot of believers don't think of it that way. They think that ministry is something very detailed that God is going to give you with a little booklet explaining step-by-step, step, A, B, C, 1, 2, 3, this is your ministry. No, you go in a simple mandate, go into all the world, preach the gospel. You go and you find your way as you go along, and he's going to work with you as you develop your ministry, as you develop your vision. And write it down, make it plain so others can read it and follow in it. Let other people understand what you're doing. So we see this in the New Testament more than ever also. We see it here, and he does this. He's here, my send me. But we see it in the New Testament. John chapter 1, verse 35. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. By the way, this is post-baptism. Jesus is already baptized. It was already declared over him. Um, they already heard the voice say, it's my son in whom I'm well pleased. And the thunder and all, you know, the show was over. This is after that. And Jesus is passing by again. And he says, look, oh, there's the guy. There's the Lamb of God. And so now this is made known to the disciples. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Jesus didn't say, hey, you two, come here, follow me. They took the initiative. They followed and turned around. Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you'll see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Interesting, what were they doing? They went with him based upon their own initiative. They decided we're going to go, and the disciples followed Jesus before ever hearing the words, follow me. It wasn't until later on, after this day, that actually Jesus went on and did what he did. He, he got tempted in the wilderness. All those things took place. And way later, weeks and weeks later, he goes and finds these disciples doing their job as fishermen. And he says to them, follow me. But we often think, well, he just showed up and said, follow me, like a Jedi mind trick. Follow me. And they just like zombies ran after him. It was not like that. They made a plan. They took steps 
by their responsibility to go and do. They pursued it. They followed. It reminds me of, of Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro with his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God, and the angel there uh, of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. And Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it didn't burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up? He was curious. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. What do you want? So my question is, how curious are we? How interested are we? Your ministry is dependent upon your desire your faith makes you whole. Your faith is saving you. Your faith is what causes you to get water baptized. Your faith is what causes you to be spirit baptized and operate in the gifts. Your faith will cause you to pursue the anointing and receive it. Your faith will cause your ministry to come to life. It's all your responsibility. We must go after the ministry that he wants us to have, but we're going to have to take it. God's waiting on you. You're not waiting on God. God's waiting on you. There are people who can help you, and God will meet you in the process, but you're the one that has to do it. Be it according to your faith. And we finish with this scripture in Romans chapter 12, verse 4. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts. According to the grace given to each of us, if your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. Here we see each one of these is according to our faith. Different types of ministries. Different functions that, of what we can do. All different things, but all of these are things we decide. We have different gifts. God gives them, the Spirit distributes them to us, but then we have to use what we have. Responsibility of faith, five areas of our obligation. This is what we saw. Salvation and healing, baptism and testimony, spirit baptism and the gifts of the Spirit, anointing and power, ministry function in kingdom. This last trip, while I was there in the U.S., a young man who has married one of my disciples, uh, he, he began to place a demand on me, the anointing of my life, my ministry. There was a time when he actually came here to Singapore, and I remember because he, he really was uh, not particularly open to me. His wife was like a spiritual daughter, and so she spoke a lot of me, but they had just gotten married, and so he, who is this guy? But as he stepped out in the ministry and has faced many, many issues, many different things, uh, he has found that it's not easy, and now he needs help. He needs direction, 
He has found that as God has called him, in fact, the Lord has called them to Lebanon as missionaries. And they went there. They spent months there looking, learning, spending time with uh, different ministries, and they found a lot of things they didn't like because that's what happens. They know that God has called them, but they don't know exactly how to do it. But then the more he spoke to his wife, his wife would speak things that I spoke to her. So his hunger grew. And this last trip in, he, man, he really was changed. He said, I need you. I need your help. I need you to help direct me. I need you to tell me, um, can, I, can I ask for that? I said, you can ask for whatever you want. It's your responsibility to place a demand on it. If there's something in me, you have to go after it. And he said, that's what I'm doing. And I said, just right. He says, well, I've never wanted to bother you. And I said, do you see anybody in the Bible that was afraid of bothering Jesus? Do you think the woman with the issue of blood was concerned about bothering Jesus? Do you think Zacchaeus climbed the tree? thinking that, oh, well, I just hope this doesn't bother Jesus. He didn't care if it bothered him or not. God is looking for people who do these kind of uh, audacious things. And so he placed a demand on me, and he said, um, I'm going to write you questions. I said, do it. So he just sent his first letter, a big, long letter with all these questions, and I'm excited about it because then I can give him help. And that's how I received help through the years, by taking responsibility, questioning my pastor questioning the guest speakers, all those that came to minister, going to David Hogan. I went to David Hogan at the end of that meeting and I said, I'm going with you. Give me just a moment. I'm going to go home and give away everything and I'm going to follow you to the mission field. He said, whoa, little brother, wait a minute. Said, we need to talk to your pastor. But that would have never happened if I hadn't taken the initiative. What if I just stayed out in the congregation praying and saying, well, God, you want it from me then you will make it happen you be the one Lord to do it and God's like no no that's not how it works you're the one that does it you need to place a demand on what you want in Christ amen